Thank you to our music team. Appreciate you. We turn now to those ancient words. Let me ask you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 2 as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. Coming now toward the end of the section where Mark, for us, Mark highlights for us the controversy that existed surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus, most especially with the religious leaders, the Pharisees being sort of the, the runners-up for the, uh, the ones causing the most trouble for him, but Jesus, of course, would not back down. Uh, this passage that we look at this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, really is coupled with Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, both identifying uh, the controversy surrounding the Sabbath. As you know, if you're familiar with the ministry and life of Jesus, much of his controversy, much of what they sort of picked on him for revolved around the Sabbath. But here he's clearly teaching that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we look now at Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. We'll look next time at the Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, at the second controversy surrounding the Sabbath, uh, but this morning, just this section here. Um, You're probably there already, but I forgot to mention last week, I'll tell you now, uh, I will be heading out this week. As you, many of you know, I'm pursuing a doctor of ministry from the Master Seminary, and so class portions will be resumed this coming week. So I'll be in class down in LA from July 7th to July 20th. And then our family will take a vacation from July 21st to July 27th. And so we thought rather than leaving twice, I'd just leave once and kind of get it all done in one foul swoop. So uh, I will be back with you Sunday, July 31st. I won't be preaching that day. Uh, We've got a number of other preachers who are capable to fill in while I'm away, but I'll be back with you. And then by then, I'll be really excited to start preaching again in the very first Sunday of August. So that's kind of what's coming up here in the next couple of weeks. I'll submit a prayer request on maybe what you could pray for me. Uh, Maybe the top of that being that I would just be able to stay awake for eight hours of class Monday through Saturday. I appreciate that very much. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28, as I said, is where we find ourselves this morning. And it highlights once again the conflict that existed between the religious leaders and Jesus. We've seen conflict arising and conflict growing, most especially because Jesus is claiming to do what only God can do. First, he claimed to heal the man, or to forgive the man's sins and verified it by healing the man. Then he was found eating with tax collectors and sinners. Last week, we saw him and his disciples not fasting. The, the normal spiritual requirements of the day required that you fast. And then this morning and and the next time we're in the Gospel of Mark, we see that controversy surrounding the holy day of the Jews, the Sabbath itself. This is what happens when legalism clashes with the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look... Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, 
and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at these ancient words, we ask that you would open our eyes. We ask that you would humble our hearts so that we would receive the food of your word, the life-giving nourishment that our souls need. And we pray most especially as these words so clearly point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would feed on him this morning. We ask, O God, that you would expose to us any areas of legalism within our own hearts, within our own lives, any areas in which we are attempting to force upon others our own rules, any areas in which we think we are better because we obey. We pray, O God, that you would remind us once again that it is Jesus and Jesus alone who is good and perfect and righteous. And we are only credited with his righteousness by faith in him. Remind us, O Lord, that it is not our righteousness that we possess, but it is his righteousness through faith. We pray, God, that you would strengthen us, enable us, help us to be equipped by your word to fight not only the legalism that, is, uh, that it so often tempts us, but also the legalism that we are often surrounded by. We pray that you would help us to stand in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would be rooted in the scriptures, never adding and never taking away, that we would see that the true key to obedience to God is love for Jesus Christ, and that you would increase our love for you, Lord, by showing us again what you have done for us. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever carried something so heavy for so long that all you could think about was how desperately you wanted to put it down? Perhaps you've helped a friend move. You're a good friend. You help when friends move. And you know, as a good friend who helps when friends move, that friends have heavy things. And so, because you love your friend, you helped your friend move, and of course, because you're able and capable and willing, you got stuck carrying the heavy thing. And you carried it as far as you could go, and your fingers were strained, and just as your grip was about to release because the pressure and the time had been so long, you were finally able to relieve yourself of the burden when your friend said, it goes right there. We know what it's like to put down something that's heavy and have the great relief of being, of no longer having to carry that particular weight. While there are certainly physical burdens which we carry, certainly physical stresses upon our lives as we go throughout, we help friends move, we go on a backpacking trip, whatever it might be, we certainly have to carry heavy things in life, but there's a greater and worse burden than any physical burden could put on a human being. There are spiritual 
burdens that every one of us carries. There are spiritual burdens that every one of us is tempted to continue to carry. But every one of those spiritual burdens, Jesus says, you can put down. There's no greater burden to mankind than the burden of legalism. Legalism attempts to make its way to God. It promises that through obedience, through rules, through law, you will get to God. In fact, if you obey them more strictly, more rigorously, then you are actually better than everyone else who doesn't obey them more strictly and more rigorously. It promises that you will get to God, but in reality, it fails. Because just as we saw last week, and just as we know by common sense, man does not establish his way to God. God and God alone paves the road to himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Legalism promises that it earns God's favor. It promises that you will have what you are working toward. But if you've ever been under the burden of legalism, then you know that that promise is a bald-faced lie. It only ever leaves you exhausted. Sure, it might pump you up in certain moments when you are keen to obey. But what about when you disobey? What about when you sin? What do you do then? Well, legalism tells you, well, you had better just do a good job. Try harder next time. Do better next time. I think we see that there from the scriptures and we see as we look at life that there are at least, maybe more, but at least two different types of legalists. Type one would be those who both teach and enforce legalism. And we see that perfectly displayed for us in the case of the Pharisees. But as we look around the, the landscape of what calls itself Christianity or what disguises itself under the guise of religion, we see that nothing has changed. There are still those who claim that you must obey if God is going to delight in you, if God is going to take you seriously, if God is going to save you, then it really depends upon you. That's type one, those who teach and those who advocate for legalism. And then there's type two, those who have been taught legalism and they simply don't know any better and they're trapped under the weight and burden of rules and regulations. They certainly have the things that they are supposed to do, but as is the case in, in every legalistic setting, the, the, things, the, the things in which you are supposed to do are far outweighed by all the things you must not do. Legalism is the greatest burden on man. And if you were to step into the house of a legalist and you were to begin to question the rules, the, the laws of legalism, well, then you had better watch out. Controversy will erupt. 
because legalists don't like to be questioned. We see it on full display for us here in this section, in this passage of Mark's gospel. Jesus has been butting heads with the religious leaders, and now here in this particular section, it's the Pharisees' turn. We've seen them already, but the Pharisees now focus, uh, the, the sole focus is now on the Pharisees and what they see the disciples of Jesus doing and the assessment that they make based upon the action of the disciples. But Jesus has not come to bow down to man's law. He's not come to fulfill legalism. He's come to fulfill the law of God. And he will not bow himself to the law of man. And he will not require that his disciples bow to the law of man. And so as we look at this conflict then... As we think about this passage, and as I mentioned, the next passage we'll study at the beginning of August, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it's almost like we see two rounds. It's a two-round fight here between Jesus and the legalists. Round 1, we'll look at this morning in verses 23 to 28 of Mark chapter 2, and then we'll take a month to ponder that, to stew on it, to think about it, and then we'll come back to round 2. As we then look at this passage, I want to break it up for us in in two sections that really, I think, highlight the heart's intent of what Mark wants us to see, that highlight the heart's intent of the ministry of Jesus Christ. First of all, I want us to see in verses 23 to 24 a question provoked by legalism. A question provoked by legalism in verses 23 to 24. To 24. First of all, in verse 23, we have the disciples' controversial action. One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they, Jesus and the disciples, made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And so you can picture it in your mind, right? They're walking through a grain field. It happens to be on the Sabbath day, which we'll think a little bit more about here in a second. And as they're walking through the grain field, we know from other passages, but we know this from their actions, the disciples are hungry. And so what do you do when you're hungry and you're walking past a whole field of food? You eat it. This was not inappropriate in any way. They weren't robbing the farmer of his crop. There were just a few of them who were eating just a few kernels of wheat, But lurking in the shadows, like the the little hyenas from the Lion King, are the Pharisees, though they're probably uglier than those hyenas. Verse 24, we have the Pharisees' critical question, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the Pharisees see what the disciples are doing, and of course, they blame the leader of the disciples, and they go directly to the leader himself to say, hey, get your people together, Jesus. Why are you letting them do what is not lawful for them to do? What did they think was not lawful for them to do? To pluck heads of grain and to eat them. 
the, the, the Pharisees had a number of things that made them particularly upset in this passage. First of all, this happened, as Mark highlights for us, on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is Saturday, still observed by those who practice Judaism and other cults as well. The Sabbath is Saturday. It, for the Jew, it was the fourth commandment that God had given to them, that they would observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In fact, it's the longest by word count commandment. Exodus 28 to 11 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It was a day that was set apart holy. And the people of Israel were to model themselves after the creation account of God working for six days and resting on the seventh day. That was the model that they were supposed to follow. That was the command that they were given. It was the most important day of the week for the Jew. And it was one of the things next to circumcision that most significantly marked them out from the Gentiles around them. It made them entirely different from the world. And so while the world busied themselves on the Sabbath, the Jew was to rest on the Sabbath. They, their law, the Pharisees' law, had prohibited really any kind of thing that could be called work. The Dead Sea Scrolls, as they have been found, could preserve the most rigorous laws concerning the Sabbath. Some of those rigorous laws that the Pharisee or that the the Dead Sea Scrolls preserve concerning the, the law of the Sabbath was the prohibition of carrying children. If you were a mother or a father of young children, you could not pick them up and carry them. That was a violation of the Sabbath. Another one of their rigorous laws that they had added on to God's law was that if you were a a owner of livestock, a farmer in any way, you could not help an animal that happened to give birth on the Sabbath. The inconsiderate animal, how dare they give birth on the Sabbath? Among those strict, rigorous laws was the fact that they could not retrieve an animal that had fallen down into a pit on the Sabbath. They just had to watch it and wait until sundown that night in order to pull it out of the pit if it was still alive. Now, the Pharisees didn't follow strictly all the guidelines that the Dead Sea Scrolls had laid out. That was more the Essenes, the people that had moved out into the middle of nowhere to not be stained by the world. The Pharisees had their laws. They observed, the, they had added on to sort of like a commentary of the Old Testament law, the Mishnah. It was the collection of teachings from the rabbis as they reflected upon the law of God. The intent of the Mishnah, the intent of the rabbis, was to try to help the Jews not break God's law. But as soon as man begins to add his law to God's law, the corruption of the heart is seen and sin ruins the whole thing. 
they had 39 tractates or 39 classes of work that were forbidden uh, for them to, to participate in the Sabbath. And some of those you could expect. They couldn't plow, they couldn't hunt, they couldn't harvest, those kinds of things. God himself had said you can't harvest on the Sabbath day. But to that, they had also added their own meticulous rules. One of them being that you could not tie or untie a knot on the Sabbath day. Maybe that's why shoestrings weren't invented yet. You couldn't sew more than one stitch in a garment. You also could not tear a stitch in order to sew another stitch. And you also could not write more than one letter. Not, you know, a letter, a piece of paper, but one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If you wrote two letters, you were a lawbreaker. And it was, if they wanted to, punishable upon death. The general rule that they had held to and the general rule of the, of the culture by now of Jesus' time, because as the Pharisees and the scribes were the dominant teachers, they were the dominant religious forces, as the leader goes, so goes everyone else. So what had bled into the culture, the religious culture of Judaism, was the general rule that you were not to do any work that was not absolutely necessary to the saving or sustaining of human life. If you did not think ahead to prepare yourself food for the Sabbath, you couldn't prepare any food on the Sabbath. You just had to wait till the sun went down that night in order to eat, even though you were not supposed to fast also on the Sabbath. So you really got yourself in a pickle. It was forbidden to set a dislocated foot or a hand, because even though you might be riling in pain, it was not going to kill you, and you just had to wait the 24-hour period for the sun to go down, and then they could set your hand or your foot. If a building fell down or a roof collapsed, you were allowed to clear enough rubble to see if anyone was alive inside the building, If they were alive inside the building, then you could pull them out, though you couldn't do any extra work to to undo the destruction. But if you uncovered the rubble and you discovered that the people in the building were dead, you had to leave them there until the Sabbath was over, and then you could dispose of the bodies. See, this this was the religious background of the day of Jesus, and this was the lens through which the Pharisees were seeing the action of the disciples. Now, we know it's totally ridiculous, right? But in their day, you can understand why they would think it was not ridiculous. Because they had been duped by the law of man. And they had been propagating continually the law of man. Because by their steadfast practice of their own laws, it made them look better than everyone else. And we know from the Gospels that what the Pharisees most loved was the praise from men and not the praise from God. They loved people looking up to them as the really godly people. And so what caused them to look up to them as the godly people was all these extra rules that they had piled on top of that they made themselves look like they were able to attain. All of that, every problem that the Pharisees had with the disciples' 
with the disciples' actions here was completely unfounded in God's law. I think that's one thing that we need to keep in mind as we, as we see this scenario in particular and as we come to passages that might leave us scratching our head thinking, did Jesus break the law? It's important for us to understand that Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Otherwise, he could not be the satisfying sacrifice for mankind. But Jesus was not interested in the slightest at fulfilling the law of man. He was the rock who had come to smash the law of man. God's law permitted what they did. Deuteronomy 23, 25 says, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So the disciples have the law of God on their side that if they walk through their neighbor's grain field, they can put their hand out and take grain. They just can't bring a sickle with them and harvest their neighbor's grain. That's stealing. But grabbing it with your hands and eating it as you travel, that's mercy. Exodus 34.21 did say, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. So even if it was a, a harvest time, the nation was to rest on that day. But that just meant that they weren't to go out with their crew and harvest the grain. It did not mean that if they were walking through the grain field, they couldn't pick it and eat it themselves. But what the Pharisees had done was taken the law of God, you can't harvest it, and they had so put their own rules in to make a harvest look like something that the disciples were doing. So the Pharisee was looking at this and they were saying, well, technically technically, you're grabbing it and you're rubbing it between your fingers in order to break the shell and get the kernel inside so that you can eat and that's harvesting, you're guilty. But in all reality, they were not breaking the law of God. They were only breaking the law of man. So we see then that this question is provoked by legalism. It's the natural propensity of mankind to attempt to force our standards upon others. This is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They took God's law, a law that they supposedly respected and revered, and instead of abiding in God's law, instead of not adding and not taking away, what they did was added their own rules to highlight and to begin to explain more specifically the law of God. They were not comfortable with the gray areas. Everything had to be black and white for the Pharisee. So we see that even today, don't we? You think of churches or religious organizations that have certain rules, and of of course some of these are understandable, and uh, if you're an organization and not a church, then I suppose you can make whatever rules you want to, but you think of churches that say things like, if you drink any alcohol, you're in sin. Really? Huh. I don't see that in here. 
I'm not supposed to get drunk, I know that. But I don't see that anywhere in here. Or if you, God forbid, you dance. You're in sin. Really? Doesn't, didn't David dance before the Lord? Was, was he sinning? Now, of course, there is, a, there is a, a line to cross. There's a gnat bugging me. If I, if I look, you know, I'm doing all these kinds of things. It's just a bug, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, I'm dancing before the Lord. That's what it is. Take that, you Pharisee. There is, of course, a line that you can cross with something like alcohol or with something like dancing or entertainment or whatever else it is. There is a line you can cross. Drunkenness is a sin. We are to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine. You can take dancing too far, and we don't need to talk about that. But the reality is that what the Pharisees had done and what legalism does is take something good that God gives as a gift and make it into a burden. Adding extra rules on top of it. And you can see that perhaps the heart's intent is somewhat good. Well, we don't, wanna, we don't want to cross the line And so in order to keep us from crossing the line, we're going to take about 20 paces back and we're going to pad it with rules. Now, there's nothing wrong with that personally. If, for instance, you have had a problem with alcohol or maybe dancing or something like that in the past, and it's a temptation for you to sin, then of course you should apply those rules to yourself. But the real danger that the Pharisees displayed And the real danger that legalism displays is taking those rules that I set for myself and then heaping them on to other people. That's the danger. But in reality, that's the propensity of mankind. We are naturally self-righteous. And so... We have to be careful then that we don't take something that is perhaps a good and right rule for us and then assume that if it's not in, even if it's not in God's word, it's a good and right rule for everyone else. Well, I don't do this particular thing, so you better not do that particular thing. I think we see this far more often than we realize. This passage was really humbling for me this week because I'll be honest I'm a I'm a recovering Pharisee let me ask you don't say anything out loud because I don't want to bust anybody out but let me ask you what do you think of the people that don't come to Sunday school Oh. oh my goodness are you kidding me What do you think of the people that don't come to Bible study? Third degree sinner. No Sunday school, no Bible study? Oh my goodness. 52 Hail Marys for you or something like that. It's really, really easy to develop the mindset of the Pharisees, isn't it? Jesus confronts their mindset, the mindset that everyone else must meet their standards. He confronts their mindset 
with the reality of the scriptures. The Pharisees over and over again heaped their rules onto other people. And all it did was burden them and weigh them down. And so you had the people who taught, the Pharisees, and then you had the people who were taught. Everyone else who who struggled, who honestly, likely wanted to do what God wanted them to do, but they're confused because here are these people they look up to saying, here's the long scroll of rules that you have to fulfill just like we do in order to get anywhere close to God. And they're just wondering, how is that even possible? In steps Jesus to say, hey, listen, don't take those guys seriously. Don't listen to them. Listen to me. And not only did Jesus come teaching the law of God and that's it, but Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. Not only does he tell us how to live, but he lived for us. So that as we fail to live out perfectly the law of God, we cling to Jesus by faith so that we can know even when we fail, Jesus has never failed. And my righteousness then, my standing before God, does not depend on me, does not depend on my works, does not depend on my efforts because I'm a failure. It depends on Jesus. And now as I am by faith in him, I get to call God Father. This is what the Pharisees didn't get because they were so concerned with their own righteousness. They were so concerned with the law that they lost sight of God altogether. So we have a question provoked by legalism and then secondly, we have an answer rooted in scripture. Jesus wasn't going to stand for their tradition and he wasn't going to allow them to force their tradition on his disciples. Instead, he picked up the sword the word of God itself. And he said to them in something that, that must have gotten under their skin, have you not read what David did? He's not talking to the, the regular riffraff of Israel. He's not talking to the tax collectors and sinners. He's talking to the Pharisees, the Bible scholars, the one who could beat everybody else at all the Bible quizzes. And Jesus says to them, have you never read I love it. Their blood had to be boiling. Of course we read. Who do you think you are? Oh, you may have read it, but you don't get it. So he answers them with an answer that's rooted in Scripture. And first of all, in verses 25 to 26, he gives them the biblical precedent of David. Verses 25 and 26 say, And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also to give it to those who were with him? So he puts a question to them. Have you never read what David did? The hero of Israel, the greatest king that Israel had ever had. The king that most points to the true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He, he pulls out one particular part of David's life found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 6. And he says, he recounts the story. He gives the, the overview of it, but he says, David and his men were running from their life from Saul. They came to the tabernacle, to the house of God, and the priest was there. And if you look this up, you'll find that uh, Abiathar is not named there, but rather the priest that David actually takes the bread from is Ahimelech. Scripture seems to teach us that Ahimelech was the son of Abiathar, but there's a little bit of discrepancy there. So it seems like he's both the son and the grandson. So there's a couple of uh, Abiathars there. But notice that Jesus doesn't say that it was Ahimelech, or rather Abiathar that gave him the bread, but he says this happened in the time of the high priest Abiathar. And so it wasn't Abiathar that David encountered, but it was during the time of Abiathar's service as the high priest. David came to the tabernacle and he said, hey, you got anything to eat? That's a modern day, that's like the message or something like that. You got anything to eat? And the priest says, well, I have the bread of the presence. But the priest knew only the priests were allowed to eat the bread of the presence. It was they were 12 loaves of bread, fresh baked, every, every time the Sabbath would come around. They couldn't bake them on the Sabbath, but they baked them before and they put them out on the golden table in the holy place, just before the most holy place. And they set them out as an offering to the Lord. And it was also designated to be eaten by the priests themselves in the holy place because it was a holy offering to the Lord. In other words, only the priests are allowed to eat this bread. But David says, hey, you got anything to eat? And Ahimelech said, well, we've got the bread of the presence. It was called the bread of the presence because it was in the presence of the Lord. Some of our translations say consecrated bread, and that's fine. But it's really the bread of the presence. And so he goes in. He takes the bread out because David couldn't go inside. And he says, here you go. Notice what Jesus points out. At the end of verse 26, just after he mentions the bread of the presence, he says, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Jesus points out that what David did was not lawful. Problem? No. Because although Mark doesn't highlight it here, Matthew does. And Bob read the, the passage that Jesus himself quoted from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Matthew's account of this says in Matthew 12, verse 7, that Jesus says to the Pharisees, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The point that Jesus is making with the story of the biblical precedence of David, of, of actually violating the law of God and eating this bread, the point that Jesus is making is that mercy outweighs rule following. When it's a question of do I follow the rules to the letter or do I give someone some food so that they don't die 
the answer is obvious. I give someone food so that they don't die, even if it breaks the law of the bread of the presence. And nowhere does the scripture condemn the priest for doing that. In fact, we see Jesus using that example to show what he teaches in Matthew, that God desires mercy more than he desires sacrifice. But the Pharisees loved the law so much that it prevented them from loving people. And that's the point. You see, Christians understand that the purpose of the law is to be a blessing to mankind. 1 John 5 says that the law is not, the commands of God are not burdensome. Which makes us go, really? Because it's kind of hard to obey. But the reality is, if the Bible says the commands of God are not burdensome, and I find that it's a little bit difficult to obey, the problem is not with the Bible, but with me and my view of the Bible. This is what Jesus is teaching them. He is saying to them effectively, reorient your view of Scripture around me. What's better, to obey the law or to love Jesus Christ? To love Jesus Christ. But of course, to love Jesus Christ is to obey the law. But if the main focus is only obedience, then it misses the reality uh, that the Bible says the main focus of life is to love Jesus Christ. And legalists get really scared when you start talking like that. Because the, the question then rises, well, what if they don't obey? What if they start sinning, running around rampant, just sin everywhere? But that's the beauty of love for Jesus Christ. It keeps you from sinning. Of course, you'll continue to sin, but because you love Jesus, you'll come back to him and you say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. That was a sin against you. That's not how you want me to live. That's not what you've given me. That's not the means and the resources you've given me to live. Forgive me, God. Fill me with your spirit. Let's go. But the legalist says, you know, if you start talking like that, we're going to have people running around living however they want, doing whatever they want. And so let's just keep it focused on the law, the do's and the don'ts. But it misses the entire point, doesn't it? The entire point is Jesus. The one who fulfills the law perfectly. This then leads them, uh, this then leads us to a second biblical answer that Jesus gave to them. In verse 27, we see a biblical understanding of the Sabbath, which really then gives us a, an entirely biblical understanding of the law itself. Jesus confronts them with his own question from the scriptures so that they can't answer. If they're foolish enough to answer, they're, then they're going to be found arguing with God. They know better than that, but they're too blind to see the emptiness of their own legalism. So in verse 27, he says, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, it's the difference, Jesus is teaching them the difference between the blessings of the gift of God and the burdens of the legalism of man. You see it? He's saying, no, 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 you got it all wrong. The Sabbath was a gift to you. 
But you've taken that gift and you've added all your rules and now you, you throw it upon everybody else. So that if they tie their shoes or they sew two stitches, then you, you think they're a lawbreaker all of a sudden. The, I was trying to remember one of the lyrics from that song that we just sang, Ancient Words, and I can't remember it now, but it said something like, something like the ancient words reveal the heart of God. What is the law? The law is the revelation of the heart of God. That's what it is. It reveals who he is. God is inherently good, right? He's not mean and grumpy. Sure, he's angry with sin, but he also is, stands always and eagerly ready to forgive sin. God gave it as a gift to them. They worked six days out of the week. God said, take a day off. Relax. Rest. Don't do any work that day. Just focus on me, God said to them. That was a gift. We have a two-day weekend, which is an even greater gift. Two days off not to work. They didn't have that. They had one day off not to work. And it was a gift to them. It was a blessing to them. It was designed to show them that they are not God, but God is good. But the Pharisees had taken that good law of God and turned it into a burden on the people. The reality is that this is not just a biblical understanding of the Sabbath, that it's good and a good gift to man, but this is a biblical understanding of the law. The law itself is good and a good gift to man. Romans 7.12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You believe that? The law is good? Romans 7.13 explains what goes wrong. Romans 7.13 says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin sees an opportunity in the law, seizes that opportunity, and then makes me a lawbreaker. But it's not the law that's the bad thing, it's sin that's the bad thing. And so the the obedience of the Pharisees could never get them to God because the law was not the point to begin with. They didn't have a law problem. They had a sin problem. And now the sin bearer himself is looking him in the face and he's saying, you don't get it. And my friend, I just have to ask you, how many times has the sin bearer looked you in the face? And you still don't get it. The law is not a burden to you. The law is a blessing to you. It guides you to the law keeper, Jesus Christ. It grabs you by the hand and it says, you can't do this, but let me show you the one who did. Not only did he fulfill the law perfectly, 
But on the cross, he paid for the sins of his people. So that now God could be just in offering us forgiveness. And not only did he die, he rose. He rose to prove verifiably that he gives life. My friend, are you running from the life that Jesus gives freely to you if you would repent of your sin and believe in him? All your attempts will never satisfy you. And you know it. But Jesus satisfies the soul supremely. He is the only satisfaction of the wrath of God for the sins of man. And he is the only true satisfaction for your soul. The Pharisees missed it. I pray you don't. So we have then a biblical understanding of the Sabbath and then... The third way that Jesus uses the scriptures is to teach them a biblical understanding of the Son of Man or of himself. A biblical understanding of the Son of Man. Verse 28 says, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now he throws down the gauntlet. He once again teaches them about who he is. He's been doing that already in these two chapters of the gospel according to Mark. He's been teaching them quite clearly exactly who he is. And you'll remember even from Mark chapter 2 verse 10 that Jesus has already used this phrase, the son of man, to teach the people who he is. Look back to chapter 2 verse 10. At the healing of the paralytic, after Jesus pronounces the forgiveness of his sins, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. When Jesus calls himself, or when Jesus says here, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, we know he is speaking of himself. He's saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And if he's Lord of the Sabbath, then he's Lord of everything. Again, this phrase, the Son of Man, points us back to something, a a scripture that the Pharisees should have been acquainted with. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. The Father there is called the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man comes to him, and the Ancient of Days presents him with power and authority. Listen to it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's Jesus, the son. And he came to the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. When Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, he means it. What he means is that the Son of Man has been given all things from the Ancient of Days. He's he's confirming what he has already said in the preaching of the gospel. The kingdom of God is here. The king has come. But they were blind. They couldn't see it. 
They loved their rules too much. They loved their nice, clean lives. They loved the praise that they got from people as they walked in their obedience to their own rules. They refused to see that the Son of Man had come because the reality is they didn't need him anyway. Their kingdom was just fine. In their incessant love for their own laws, the Pharisees simply could not see exactly what Jesus was telling them from the Bible. They certainly claimed to love God, but what they really loved was their own law, nothing more. So we see then that the the question that the Pharisees asked was provoked by their own legalism. And we see that the answer that Jesus gave to them was rooted in the scriptures. What hope does the legalist have? What must the legalist do to dump the exhausting burden of silly rules that only weigh him or her down? The very same thing that everyone must do. Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The legalist, just like everyone else, must recognize that righteousness cannot be attained outside of Jesus Christ. The legalist, just like everyone else, must see Jesus as the one and only one who has fulfilled perfectly the law of God. The legalist, just like everyone else, must see the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only hope for forgiveness of their sins. The legalist, just like everyone else, must treasure the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the sure proof that he and he alone is the giver of life. The legalist, just like everyone else, must stop relying on works and cling to Jesus by faith as the only one who can make them righteous. The legalist, just like everyone else, must become a Christian by repenting of sins and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ.